Hello and welcome to Integrate Faith and Innovate. This is episode seven of season two with our hosts, F.T. Tong and myself. I'm Hannah Stoles, director of the Wheaton Center for Faith and Innovation and professor of marketing and supply chain management. And I'm here with F.T., who is the head of private capital at Pinebridge Investments. This is the podcast for conversations about the integration of faith with practical tips for faithful decision-making in everyday business. So welcome to episode seven. In this episode, we are delighted to have Dr. Ken Barnes with us. And Dr. Barnes is the Mockler Phillips Professor of Workplace Theology and um, Business Ethics and the Director of the Mockler Center for Faith and Ethics in the Public Square at the Gordon-Conwell Theology Seminary. Prior to his academic career, Dr. Barnes spent many years as a senior international executive for several multi-billion dollar companies doing business on six different continents. In addition to his corporate work, Ken has also worked with small and medium-sized enterprises and startups and continues to serve as a company director and mentor to young executives, as well as being an author. So um, Ken, Dr. Barnes, welcome to our show. And I'm excited about our conversation today, thinking about what does it mean to redeem capitalism? What does it mean to mix morality and economics? And FT, you and I have a lot of conversations about um, spiritual maturity and the spiritual quotient. So FD, I'll turn it over to you um, to kind of talk a little bit about spiritual maturity. And um, and then we'll hear from Ken and his story and his journey that brought redeeming capitalism into the marketplace. Yeah, thank you very much. Welcome, uh, Ken. Do we call you Ken or Dr. Barnes? Please call me Ken. It's <laughs> Ken. Uh, first of all, I am a, uh, I'm here uh, because I'm a parent of a Wheaton student uh, and also as a Christian. Um, <clears throat> so in our conversations, we tried to encapsulate the idea of spiritual quotient, or which is in, uh, in addition to IQ and EQ, a, a measure, we will come up with an index one day, Hannah, um, <clears throat> of uh, the spiritual um, element we bring to our professional work, uh, which is um, our moral values, our resilience, our uh, the direction of our, our of our spiritual compass, which really our worldview affects our work. So, um, and it should be part of the conversation. Um, so, uh, and we have been try, trying to plumb that idea with different guests that we have had. Um, so, Ken, uh, welcome. Let's talk. Yeah, uh, Hannah, you want to start? Yeah, Ken, could you just tell us about your journey and? Um, how how did you what inspired you you know to think about capitalism through redemptive lens and um, in in terms of you know thinking about the morality of economics um, what does this look like and and why did you write the book? Well, first of all, um, thank you for having me. Uh, I, you know, your center and the Macro Center are very very similar in so many ways, uh, and it's it's nice for us to connect formally uh, uh, in this environment. So I started out uh, in the business world right out of college. In fact, even before I finished college. And I loved business. And I was pretty good at it. Uh, I, I used to, in fact, I still occasionally joke with my students that if they watch the movie Wall Street, I'm like that guy with the yellow suspenders and yellow tie, you know, who was the, the obnoxious vice president at 25 and, you know, wanted to make a lot of money and, and uh, et cetera, et cetera. 
but what I found was that while I was pretty good at business and really enjoyed it, I also realized that there was a dark side to it, uh, that this wonderful thing that we call capitalism, which is by far the, the most efficient system ever devised by humankind to create wealth and to take people out of poverty uh, and to enhance human flourishing, uh, can very easily be manipulated uh, in ways that are very, very unhelpful. And if uh, we don't have a moral compass undergirding how we do business, and that goes from the personal level all the way up to the macro level, then we could end up with a system that actually creates more problems uh, than it needs to. So that's what started driving me to the question, how do I ensure that when I am working out in this so-called secular sphere, that my strong religious beliefs and my convictions about right and wrong and morality and virtue are at the forefront, not only of my Sunday life, but also my Monday to Friday life as well. So that's what drove me down this road. So this is uh, amazing, you know, to think about, Ken, and, and the space of um, morality matters, right? And um, the system is, is amazing, but it, it needs to be buffered with our morality. So what are the ways that you see morality and economics playing together? Um, you know, how, how do markets become moral? That's a great question. Um, and, and by the way, uh, uh, FT, you, you mentioned, you know, the spiritual quotient. I'm sure you're familiar with the work of uh, Ted Malik, who a number of years ago when he was at Yale wrote a book about virtuous capitalism, and he spoke about uh, spiritual capital as being this untapped source of capital in organizations, and, and really a very useful, uh, very useful piece of work. Um, so what I tell my students is this, capitalism is a subject, not an object. I, I think about that for a minute. You know, we think about capitalism, especially global capitalism, as though it's some sort of, you know, monolithic thing that possesses hypostasis of its own, that has agency of its own, that's driven by some central mind. That is just not true. Capitalism is simply the word we use to describe this unbelievable phenomenon of lightly regulated, highly monetized free markets. And what that means is that it is also nothing more than the accumulated effect of countless individual and corporate decisions. Uh, and so therefore, because decisions, choices, uh, are borne by people who make decisions based on what they believe to be true and what they believe to be in their best interest or in the interest of the common good, whatever it might be, is going to be driven by their worldview. So hence, the capitalism we have is the capitalism we've chosen because it's the result of this ethic. And unfortunately, as I describe in the book, the ethic of traditional capitalism that was observed by Adam Smith or even the ethic of modern capitalism as observed by Max Weber has given way to a postmodern capitalism, which is actually devoid of a moral compass and resistant, if not impervious, to ethical constraint. It's driven by ethical egoism. And that is, frankly, the whole Friedman doctrine as it pertains to yeah. ethics. And so I speak against that ethical egoism and say we need to replace it 
with a different moral ethic. Yeah, there's so much there. We could talk for hours. <laughs> they can just read the book. Just tell them to read the book. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but um, the one thing, the genius of capitalism is that it really falls into the biblical framework of a fallen world, right? Uh, in that in a fallen world, how do you tap greed in a way that benefits a lot of people, benefits the economy? And in a sense, capitalism has managed to be a realistic uh, construct in a fallen world, where if, if in a fallen world, greed, you know, how do you tap greed for the better good? And it has worked. Well, yes and no. I wouldn't say that you have to tap greed. Um, in fact, if you think about the markets, what drives markets? Greed and fear, neither of which are virtues, right? Uh, but you do want to tap uh, human instinct to better themselves. Human instinct really built on, on the, the social construct given to us in the creation mandate to subdue, right, and to create uh, and to flourish. Uh, the garden mandate still applies, but it is contaminated by the fall. And so I would say that we don't necessarily harness greed. What we do, because I would say greed is actually the perversion of the natural instinct that God has given us to be creative uh, and to ensure a better future for ourselves and for our progeny. So uh, I, I, this, is, this is the great conundrum. So, so the, the ethical egoism construct, which is that if everyone only looks after their interests, all the boats will rise with the tide, we find it becomes very, very perverted very quickly to selfishness. Now, self-interest is not selfishness. And this, I think, is what you were driving at, FT. We has harnessed the value of self-interest. But all self-interest is, is one half of the double love command. We are commanded to love God, how? as we love ourselves. The natural presumption is that human beings do love themselves. And that is neither evil nor sinful. That, in fact, is part of what it means to be created in the image of the God who is love. Yeah. Let me push one more thing. You said there's a moral vacuum in postmodern society. Um, that, that, that kind of presumes that there was a moral whatever before that. Um, if you read the Bible, it's always been somewhat the same. There has been a moral vacuum in most of society, most of history. Um, what makes this different or worse? Well, you know, I recently contributed a, a chapter to uh, the Routledge Handbook on Business Ethics on religious belief in business ethics. And actually, the notion that economics requires a certain degree of moral sentiment uh, is universal across all the global religions. It's not unique to the Judeo-Christian ethic. And so while, yes, there has always been uh, the perversion of God's natural plan as a result of the fall, there is also the Imago Dei. Uh, there is also the sense that all of us hold, uh, that we are created in the image of God. Uh, and so if we think about both the census divinitatis and the Imago Dei as things which drive us to a higher purpose and a higher cause, this is actually part of common grace. So we can tap into our better angels without having to simply 
accept the fact that, well, because we're sinful and we're fallen, we need to just operate under those presumptions. You know, Adam Smith operated uh, under a presumption, uh, as all Enlightenment thinkers did, that in fact, human beings were capable of a considerable amount of good, a considerable amount of virtue. Uh, the fact that we haven't lived up to that doesn't mean that we should abandon it. So the argument in my book is we need to tap into that which is already there, which is this innate sense of what is good, true, right, noble, honorable, etc. And so I talk about the so-called cardinal virtues, which some people think are secular. In fact, they aren't. They're just as theological as the theological virtues, but also the theological virtues, which are just as universal as the cardinal virtues. Why? Because they all emanate from God. So we, we have the ability to tap into that universal common grace. Can I, I want to, this is, this is so interesting. And um, I want to ask about, you know, how things have shifted with COVID over the last year. But before we um, shift to that, um, one of the things that I've observed, and, you know, I'm, I'm a supply chain professor and I work in very tactical spaces, not business ethics and, you know, the, the beautiful theory that you get to read and write about. But um, one of the things I observed in thinking about common grace and virtue ethics um, was that I saw a lot more biblical principles that I felt like were being practiced in secular spaces in organizations and companies than I felt like were being taught in Christian spaces. Um, so and let me give you an example. You know, working with companies that were pursuing lean and talking about the ways that lean management and total quality management actually created integrity for frontline workers and how amazing it was to draw these, you know, to give dignity to workers that were, you know, hourly and all of that. And, you know, really virtuous kind of things being applied in Fortune 500 companies that I wasn't seeing taught or explained or applied in religious spaces. And I'm just really interested in, in why why do you think we ended up where the good work seems to be doing, and, and this is a gross generalization, but it seems like a lot of good work is being done in the world that isn't being done by the church sometimes. Mm -hmm. And do you well, have any thoughts on yeah, that? I do. I think that's a really good question. That's, that's one of the best questions I've ever been asked. I've done a lot of these interviews. Um, and just to let you know, I spent 30 years in global manufacturing. Great. Okay, so, so, you know, I'm, I'm a lean guy, you know, from start to finish. And when you're doing global supply chain, this stuff is really important. And the answer to your question is, I think, very simple. Virtuous business is good business. Yeah. Virtuous business is good business. You know, when you look at Adam Smith, one of the things that I find fascinating is that Adam Smith believed that in order for capitalism to actually work well, everybody in the ecosystem needed to benefit. It couldn't just be the owners. It couldn't just be the people at the top. Uh, one of the reasons why he argued against slavery was not only because he thought it was a moral evil, he thought it was an economic waste. Because if you don't have everyone in the ecosystem participating and benefiting beyond mere subsistence, that's how he explained it. Everyone needed to be benefiting beyond mere subsistence. If you don't have that, then you kill the very engine that drives economic growth. And I remember one time someone once asked, um, Henry Ford, uh, how do you decide how much to pay your people? And he famously said, I want them to make enough money to buy one of my cars. 
and, and that is actually very good economics. So I have worked with a lot of companies that do this very well, that actually look at a, a, a kind of ethic of mutuality, which you know mm -hmm. the folks at the Mars Catalyst Group have been writing about for quite a while. It's, it's a very, very uh, uh, good research that's gone into this. And how do you look at not just your supply chain, but your entire economic chain from supply all the way to distribution to ensure that there is a mutuality of gain? And now that thinking goes against a lot of the traditional you know, fiduciary thinking about shareholder value. But in fact, the companies who apply this, this theory of mutuality actually outperform the rest of the market, their peers. So it's good business to be virtuous. Yeah. So you're totally talking my language, right? In Good. the supply chain space and all of that. Um, can I ask you just a, a slight shift on it? Like, I'm with you. Virtue is happening in the marketplace. How do we get virtue back in the church? Mm. <laughs> well, well, here's here's the problem. And, and, and it's not that the church doesn't care about these things. It's that the church has compartmentalized yeah. what it means to be a Christian. And we, we concentrate so much on spiritual maturity and discipleship that we forget about whole life discipleship. We forget about that God calls us to be salt and light in every aspect of life. And one of the things that I dedicate my life to now is educating the church on issues of faith and work and economics. Because you know what? It's scary. It's scary. You know, people, people, you talk about economics to a pastor and, and they don't want to get into a space where they don't know more than the people in their congregations, right? They're trained in Greek and Hebrew and exegesis and systematic theology, etc., And they know more than their congregation. But if F.T. Chang is in your congregation and you start talking about virtue ethics in business, you're afraid you might be made to look silly. So what I try to do, and in fact, to be honest with you, probably the greatest compliment I've gotten on redeeming capitalism is that it makes economics accessible. Hmm. My, my friends at Oxford, where I used to teach, were very complimentary about the economics, but more important, the pastors were complimentary about the fact that it made economics accessible to non-economists, non-global business people. Yeah, in, in a sense, it's been kind of sad that the... Um, non-Christians have taken the lead in things like responsible investing, as you said, virtuous capitalism, ESG, uh, environment, social governance, DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion. That should have been led by Christians. <laughs> the whole conversation should have been led by Christians. Um, and uh, it's about time we kind of came up to the forefront and said, yeah, we, that's, those are Christian kind of values. Right? Yeah. And, and, and I'm happily, you know, I work with a lot of Christian investment houses, Eventide and others who, who are so totally committed to this. They know they're playing catch up, but now they're setting the targets. Now they're setting the, uh, uh, the goals very high and setting an example for others. And by the way, I'm sure you know this, FT, the, 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 the single largest area of growth in investment right now is in impact investing and ESG investing. Now, so every, so I've worked for an investment house and we, we along with, you know, virtually everybody else have put in a lot of effort uh, to be uh, 
to be to adopt ESG values and responsible investing things to think through it to be uh, on you know on the leading edge of doing things that are right. Um, there are a lot of companies and people actually who just do not virtuous things but virtue signaling. Mm, yes, <laughs> it's just talk. You know, exactly. it's easy to do virtual signaling. It's harder to actually make changes, uh, and and so we, you know, we try we try to be actually be walking the walk instead of just talking the talk, right? And 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 you know, I'm so glad you said that. Uh, some people call it virtue washing. You know, they they put <laughs> out statements. That. Yeah, they put out statements saying, "Oh, look, what we just did. We reduced our carbon footprint, or whatever it might be," which is great. But then you find out that in other parts of the business, you know, they're they're paying people unlivable wages and on and on. But but here's the thing, uh, you know, I'm a firm believer in capitalism. I, I tell everybody the title of the book is Redeeming Capitalism, Not Replacing Capitalism. And the power of capitalism is the power of the markets. So if individual Christians exercise the power of choice by insisting that how their retirement funds, for instance, are invested how their church's endowments are invested, what their own 401k, how it is invested, how they're spending their money every single month. Individual Christians can make a huge impact. Uh, and we've seen it in other areas. So we know we can do it in that area as well. Yeah. Ironically, actually, you know, most companies are owned by people. Yeah. Uh, through pension plans, insurance companies. So yeah. when you attack big companies, you're actually attacking yourself because yeah. you're owner. Uh, in a sense, the, the whole Marxist thing where a few people own all the economy is not true, except for some technology companies that are, you know, that are dominate certain sectors. Um, I just want to bring this back to the individual mm -hmm. because uh, let me do a quote. I actually printed this one out today. It's been in the back of my mind. So Carlos Slim, who used to be the wealthiest man in Mexico, and uh, he said a few years ago he won the World Education and Development Fund uh, Award uh, in New York, and he said, uh, many people want to leave a better world for their children. Uh, I'm trying to leave better children for my world. And that really struck me. I'm like, yeah, we all want to make a better world, but actually it comes from making better people. And uh, so in a sense, it is, it is a biblical principle, right? Make disciples of the world. It's mentoring people that will make better companies rather than just saying making better companies. Mm. Um, I think that's kind of the direction of your work and actually all of our work in that it has to go back to the individual. So my question is, how does the individual respond after reading your book, right? How well, does that yeah, that's a great question as well. You know, I, I had a conference. I hosted a conference at Bretton Woods, symbolically, obviously. I brought in uh, economists. I brought in church leaders. I brought in academics, very high-level people. And, and we had our own little Bretton Woods conference. And we asked this very question because, as I say in the book, the, the Redeeming Capitalism, it's a can-do book, not a how-to book. Mm -hmm. uh, so the question was, what, where's the how-to? And of course, because of the, the places where we move, uh, we ask the question, what can the seminaries and the churches especially do, and Christians in the workplace do, where are the how-tos there? 
And so the, the next book, the sequel to Redeeming Capitalism, which should be out in the late fall, which I'm calling Transforming Capitalism, is first of all to transform the way people think about money, uh, the way they think about economic activity, the way they think about work, and educating people about the biblical values that are inherent in a virtuous form of capitalism. So I think the seminaries and the centers at places like Wheaton and others uh, and the, the churches are going to have to start embracing this concept. And they're going to start creating tools to help people not only intellectually understand the relationship between wealth and worth and how God sees these things and how we do our actions in the everyday work life, but also how we do it in our stewardship. I, I, have, I have a very dear friend um, who has written extensively in this same space, um, who now goes around talking to uh, churches uh, about how people can use their bank statements as a kind of moral scorecard for how they're treating their gifts of finance. Uh, mm -hmm. And it is quite fascinating. If, if you take your monthly bank statement it says a lot about your values. Where did that money go? And if you hold yourself accountable to where your money goes, it starts dramatically affecting where that, where, how you act. Uh, and then you start having a, a, a cumulative effect. So one of, the, one of the big issues right now is um, how we shop in retail. I have nothing against Amazon. Praise God for Amazon during COVID, right? But the fact of the matter is, if Amazon kills Main Street, then we will have created Frankenstein's monster. We need a healthy Main Street. Well, that comes down to individual decisions about, I'm not only going to seek the quickest delivery and the lowest price. I'm also going to support my neighbor down the street whose economy in the local sense is served better by me shopping there than elsewhere. The statistics are that when you shop online, about 76 cents out of every dollar actually goes back into the local economy. Whereas when you shop locally, about a dollar and a half of every dollar you spend goes back into the economy locally. So there are economic benefits to shopping locally. Things like that, changing people's behavior, that's how we change capitalism. One person at a time, one company at a time, not from the top down as much as the bottom up, in my humble opinion. We, we, this, is a, this is so pivotal that we individually grasp it and you know, understand the role that we play, right? And especially like we're in a democracy, we're in a capitalist society. Like we, as individuals, have a lot of agency that I think we don't realize sometimes. This is a really good, great point. Um, we only have a little bit of time left, but um, I do want to ask, you know, just top of mind, you know, what are what are the, some of the things that are, you know, maybe not keeping you awake at night, but um, what are you considering and, you know, what are what are you thinking about as, as I'm guessing your next book is close to being impressed already, but um, just in general, coming out of COVID and everything over the last year? Well, the the book that's coming after the next book, uh, I'm... I'm uh taking my sabbatical actually this fall uh, to do the research because it is, is very much about macroeconomics, the last book of the trilogy. 
And the working title right now is called After the Dollar. Hmm. Uh, because I am very, very concerned about the excess liquidity in our system and the mountains and mountains of debt in our system and the asset bubbles that are being created. And now we're even seeing, which was very predictable, consumer price inflation starting to rear its head. We are, in my opinion, uh, being imprudent in the way we are monetizing our system. And that's not good for the long term. And here's the thing. It doesn't just involve speaking to the decision makers because decision makers respond to a market as well. It's called the electorate. And mm -hmm. so the electorate needs to be informed enough to tell those decision makers that we aren't happy with how cavalier we are being with the future of our economic system. So that's, mm -hmm. that's top of mind for me right now. Yeah, I mean, in a sense, uh, we, we can't do anything about it because um, it's like um, a couple of young children finding dad's credit card and having a shopping spree. It feels really good. <laughs> uh, and uh, I say we can't do much about it because it's kind of a, you know, who controls the Fed, the governments around the world. It's worked in the short term in terms of flooding the system with money has worked. It, it's worked really well. Uh, the problem is, what do we do next? <clears throat> um, and that's going to be a long term issue. It's worked in some countries where, you know, for 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 decades now. Um, so we will we will be be seeing the other side of it. So I think we should go back to the individual again. Mm -hmm. And uh, we need some nuggets of wisdom to pass on. Well, the first thing I would say uh, is, as Hannah alluded, uh, don't underestimate your own agency in this whole thing, uh, because markets are just an accumulation of people's decisions. You know, who wears a fur coat anymore? Precious few people wear fur coats Me, I, I, I like to. No, I'm just kidding. Go ahead. <laughs> Seriously, <laughs> because, um, you know, we changed the narrative around that. You can, you can, people can change a narrative and change it very quickly thanks to social media. You know, one of the downsides of social media is that there is, you know, so much bad information out there. But the upside of social media is that you really can change a narrative very, very quickly. Uh, and so we need to start doing that. We need to change that narrative. Uh, the second thing we need to do, and this is so important, understand that if we don't redeem capitalism, I promise you, we're going to hate what replaces it. Mm -hmm. This is really important. Uh, and, and so we need to be very clear that um, the individual agency that we have will have an immediate impact in a relatively short period of time, if we get it right. So um, people need to be better stewards of their own purses. Individual debt in America is at an all-time high. It is somewhere in the region of $3 trillion. Credit card debt alone is a trillion. Uh, and then you have all the other debt. Um, so for me, that's one of the most important things. Bring down personal debt. Uh, increase uh, your personal savings. Uh, start thinking differently about so-called retirement. You know, I think one of the great myths that has been perpetrated 
uh, by marketing people for the last 30 years is that the goal of work is to retire and go to Florida and play golf for 20 years. Well, I love to play golf, but frankly, we are, we are really missing the opportunity to have an intergenerational dialogue. And if we would think less about, you know, how I'm going to pay for my condo in Florida when I retire and more about how maybe I can help my children buy their first house and it can be a, a multiple family house and I can live there in, the, in my retirement so that I can have closer access to my grandchildren the way it was done for centuries and the way they still do it in many, many other cultures. Think about the economic benefit of that, where so much less pressure will be put on things like Social Security right, and Medicare, right, because people will be looking after the next generation in ways that are less costly to the macro economy and more beneficial to our children. I got to tell you, being a grandfather has changed my perspective greatly because I realize now how much I learned from my grandparents. And mm -hmm. that is wisdom that we can't afford to lose. So there's an awful lot that people can do on an individual basis to rethink about lifespan, savings, debt, economic wisdom, human flourishing, these things all are individual decisions that we can make. And they're biblical. They're biblical. This, is, this is so powerful and um, such a great way of taking individual responsibility for economic impact. Um, one last question before we, we close and we'll, we'll pray as we, as we close. Um, do you have one scripture that really guides you or stands out to you as you think about the marketplace and capitalism today? Yeah, you know, I, I don't have a particular verse per se, uh, but I do think of my faith work in economics ministry within the rubric of the whole biblical meta-narrative, right? You can't isolate it. You, you have to look at it within the context of creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. We, we live in the already but not yet. And so we need to think about the impact our current activity has on that meta-narrative. Uh, because there will be work in the kingdom, but it's work that won't be under the curse. We are created in the image of God who is the worker par excellence. So how we live our lives is as important to God as what we do in terms of outcome. And that to me is what drives my thinking. And that is as biblical a construct as I think you can have. Yeah, I, uh, I totally agree. And um, I think there's some, some great challenges in this to think about our own bank account and our bank statements, as well as the impact that we have as one of many who influence the market around us. So um, thank you so much, Penn, for talking with us and for sharing your wisdom with us today. Well, it was absolutely my joy. And uh, keep doing the great work you folks are doing. And I hope that Wheaton and Gordon Conwell continue the conversation. I hope so, too. Um, FT, uh, could you uh, unmute and just pray really briefly for us as we close today? Yeah. Uh, thank you. And I do believe that uh, it's great to have different little groups 
around the country doing similar work um, so that we can, you know, it's, 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 uh, it's stronger that way uh, as opposed to trying to build one big organization. Um, well, thank you very much and uh, let us pray. <clears throat> thank you, Father, for the time and uh, this conversation. Uh, we hope that this will help to encourage and enlighten people uh, especially Christians in the world who are working, striving, trying to make sense of how things should work uh, in the business world. Um, we thank you and we pray that uh, you will, you will uh, bless those who hear this uh, conversation and help us to live the things that we, we, uh, we claim to, to, um, to believe in and uh, not just be virtually signaling people, but uh, be virtuous uh, professionals in our own spheres. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much.